You are listening to a message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. For more information on City Church, or for additional resources, including service times, recommended readings, and additional audio, please visit citychurchpa.org. Well, for those of you who may not know, my name is Joe Gill. I am an elder candidate or elder candidate in training with City Church, and it is my distinct privilege to be here this morning. As we're approaching Christmas Day, and the annual celebration of the incarnation of our Savior, it's very appropriate that we take some time this morning to focus on and think about the fact that the Son of God became man. And we're working in the book of Hebrews, which was, it was written to clearly a predominantly Jewish Christian audience. Uh, these were Christians who had come from Judaism, and the, the signs are all very clear. The fact that uh, in Hebrews, he's, he's talking about the Old Covenant, he's talking about Moses, he clearly assumes that his readers have knowledge of the, the history of Israel. So he, he's talking to, to people with Jewish background. And the writer of the book of Hebrews, he's not trying to convince his audience that Jesus of Nazareth is their long-awaited Messiah. They're Christians. They already believe that. So that's, that's not the, the point at issue. The problem that they were facing was that these first century Jewish Christians who have already suffered persecution in the past, they are continuing now to experience pressure. Pressure to abandon their Christian distinctives. Pressure to give preference to the law of Moses as their sole infallible rule of faith and practice. They were being influenced to view the gospel of Jesus as subordinate at best before the law. And in this way, they were being induced to cling to a shadow rather than grasping the substance that the shadows were pointing to. They had professed a faith in Jesus as their Messiah, but their understanding of what that meant and the advantages that became theirs in Christ was deficient. Just to give a little bit of context for the, the words that we will be considering today in Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 18, chapter 1 of Hebrews had made abundantly clear that the Son, the Christ, was much greater by far than the angels. And the reason that the writer of Hebrews is talking about angels is that it had become a prevailing belief amongst, amongst the Jews that angels were instrumental in the delivery of the Mosaic Covenant. That, that angels had been there and they were involved in delivering the words of the covenant from God to Moses. So, the law of the Old Covenant was regarded as heavenly, 
and divine in authority because it was delivered in this way. But now, the author of Hebrews says, God has spoken to us by his son. And God had said things about the son that he never said about angels. You are my son. Let all God's angels worship him. Your throne, O God, is forever. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he declared in no uncertain terms the vastly exceeding authority of the Son of God. And so that's where he's come from as he's building up to his his main point, which he states here in chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And now beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2, he's going to add another argument to that same point. He says, the world to come that we are talking about is not set under the power of the angels. Now, he says world to come that we are talking about. But prior to this point in chapter 2, the author of Hebrews hadn't actually mentioned those words, world to come. So what, what could he mean by that? Is, is he really talking about something he had already mentioned, or is he just saying that, is he, is he, is he talking about the message about the world to come that, that Christians were preaching generally? Well, he's about to tie the promise of the, of the world to come to the person of Jesus and his redemptive work. And so he's not changing the subject. When he references the world to come, he's still talking about the great salvation that he mentioned in chapter 2, verse 3. And this is an important point because it's very easy when we are considering our salvation in Christ to think only of being spared from hell. And frequently that's kind of how it's, that's sort of the sum total of it in our minds. But, but to speak of hell is really to talk only about the, the, the expectation or the destiny of the impenitent. But what about the holy? What do they have to look forward to besides not going to hell? The world to come. This is another way that that we say another way that we communicate the fact that salvation is not only salvation from the punishment for sin, but it's also a salvation from the power of sin, and finally, a salvation from the presence and all of the corrupting effects of sin. And the effects of sin stretched throughout the human line under Adam and to all of creation. Just as the Apostle Paul said, In Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 24, the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved. This has been the hope of God's people for millennia. Not an escape and an abandonment of the world that God made. Not a nirvana that casts off the physical world as a lost cause. The hope of God's people, ever since Adam and Eve were evicted from Eden, has been the promised seed who would crush the forces of evil and remove them from the world, leaving the righteous to inherit a rejuvenated creation. That is the hope of the gospel. Now he says, the world to come has not been subjected to angels. The angels are not going to be in charge of that world to come. It will not be their world. He says in Hebrews 2, verses 6 to 8, but someone somewhere has testified. And that, by the way, was not, he, he didn't forget who it was. He's about to quote Psalm 8. He knew it was of David, but he, he's, he's emphasizing that this was the word of God. So someone somewhere has testified to God's word. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. And then he adds this comment, for in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject. Now, very quick Bible study tip. Read carefully. And, and be careful to identify pronouns and the, the words that pronouns refer to, okay? And notice that what him is referring to in Psalm 8 is man. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. So when the author of Hebrews says, in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not, he hasn't changed the pronoun. We're still talking about mankind. And this might seem a little strange at first, for obvious reasons. But this is a quotation of Psalm 8, in which David began by contemplating the majesty of God as it is displayed in the heavens, and then he turns to think about man. And in Psalm 8, if you just go and, and read it there, it doesn't really seem like it's talking about the world to come. He's using past tense verbs. He made him, he crowned him, subjected under his feet. David seems to be talking about the present world. And that's correct. 
he was. You recall that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God had created the first man and woman, it says, he blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So just as it says in Psalm 8, according to the Genesis record as well, this was man's status at the beginning. But then the writer of Hebrews, going back to Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 8, he points out an obvious fact. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. So notwithstanding God's words at creation or the testimony of David in Psalm 8, we do not see everything subjected to mankind. So there's a disconnect here. What is the disconnect? It is the fall. One of the church's great theologians, John Calvin, in his commentary on Hebrews, he put it this way. He said, as soon as Adam alienated himself from God through sin, he was justly deprived of the good things that he had received. He wasn't denied the use of them, but he would have no right to them after he had forsaken God. And then Calvin goes on to point out some specific evidences of how we had lost these rights. The wild beasts attack us. Those who ought to be awed by our presence are instead dreaded by us. Some will never obey us. Others can hardly be trained, and they harm us in various ways. The earth doesn't answer our expectations in cultivating. The sky, the air, the sea, and other things are often adverse to us. Jewish tradition held that the angels had delivered the old covenant. Another teaching in Jewish tradition was that angels were also the ones holding sway over earth in the present age. And this is reflected as well in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6, 12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So this explains the disconnect. Man, after he had been installed in his prestigious position, he was reduced to slavery under a cruel master, sin and Satan. And everything that was placed in man's power suffered the dire consequences. And only in the world to come would God's people reign with him as originally intended. And this whole circumstance seemed quite hopeless. Man is trapped. Man is enslaved. He is corrupted. He's become like a warped piece of wood. Crooked. Twisted. We could put that piece of wood under pressure with clamps and glue. and We can make it look straight. And it might even stay that way for a while. Anybody in here worked as a carpenter or done woodworking of other kinds? All right. Gentlemen, what happens 
if the glue lets go and you take the clamps off? Is the wood going to stay straight? No. It springs right back to its natural twisted state. It was straight while it remained under pressure, but the fundamental, the fundamental nature of the wood remains unchanged. And that board is not fit for use in the construction of a king's house. All you carpenter guys, somebody tell me, how do you take the warp out of a board? I mean, without using glue or clamps. How do you make it truly straight? Does that actually remove the warp from the wood, though? It can't really be done. You could shape the wood, but the distortion is still there. It's in the wood. It has to do with how that tree grew. And the only way to really cure a warped board that's too crooked to suit your purpose is to scrap it and go find a straight one. So man is thus trapped. He's twisted. He's distorted. And believe it or not, God has a dilemma too. He does. His workmanship in man has been corrupted by the deception of Satan. And if God simply casts them off, then he might as well have never made them in the first place. And that kind of indifference would not be proper to his goodness. But at the same time, God was the one who decreed death for man's disobedience. And he can't go back on his word without doing violence to his truth and his justice. So what will he do? This was indeed a knot that God might not be able to untie. Or so the devil thought. Hebrews 2.9, but, you know, that really is one of the most blessed words in Scripture. So many of the most glorious, most hope-filled, and exciting truths of salvation are ushered in to our hearts and minds through that word, but. And here again, it breaks through the gloom of an apparently hopeless situation to dispel that darkness. But what do we see? We do not see everything subjected to man because man was corrupted. But what do we see? We do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. We look around, we see the word of God in Psalm 8 falling flat. We were made to be little less than God. We were made to be crowned with glory and honor. We were made to be the vice regents of the earth. But we're slaves instead. We're filthy instead of glorious. We can't even approach God. If we are to have any chance at all, we need someone who can act as a mediator. And then appears this man who is everything that Adam was meant to be. 
He was straight, not crooked or twisted. He was perfectly submitted to his God. He demonstrated the administration of the kingdom wherever he went. In fact, he went about preaching that the kingdom of God or the reign of Yahweh, the world to come, had arrived with him. Then he died a death that even the pagan Pilate knew that he did not deserve. And God brought him back to prove it. Our hope for the future was reborn with Jesus. It was resurrected with Jesus. It was seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father where no devil can ever touch it again. It is crucial, though, to understand that Jesus' incarnation was not merely a show. He didn't come, he didn't come and only appear to be a man. Nor did he gather another fistful of dust from out in the wilderness and fashion himself a fresh human body and then step into that like a suit. Although that, that would have been easier and certainly less messy than the way he chose to do it. But the church father, Athanasius, he says, no, he took our body, a pure body, untainted by intercourse with man. He, the mighty one, the artificer of all, himself prepared this body in the virgin as a temple and took it for his very own as the instrument through which he was known and in which he dwelt. He became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Just any body wouldn't do. It had to be a body like ours. Why is that important? Because it means that when Jesus suffers for sin, our obligation to suffer is fulfilled in his person. And it means that when Jesus is glorified, so are we. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 again, and verse 10, says, We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What I'm doing this morning is we're considering what this gift means. Again, we're approaching Christmas Day and we're considering the gift that it is that Jesus came as a man. And in this particular text, in Hebrews chapter 2, there are two main aspects of the gift. That Jesus is for us a pioneer and that he is a priest. Jesus is a pioneer. He is a forerunner. He's a captain. He's a trailblazer. He is the last Adam. Because what this did, he made a way for us to get back to our original purpose and our original destiny. How does that work? 
it really wasn't all that long ago in the broader scope of world history, 18th, 19th century, children in, in, excuse me, children in this country, they learned their ABCs and they would, begin, they would begin by reciting, A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. The first Adam sinned, but he did not sin only for himself. He sinned as a public figure. Adam was also a forerunner and a pioneer. He sinned as a covenant representative appointed by God. So that in Adam, each and every one of us was given the best possible circumstances to be tested under. And we had an as yet uncorrupted person acting on our behalf. But he failed. And we failed in him. This can be a tough pill to swallow for some people. But there's no getting around the fact that it is the teaching of scripture. It's all over Romans chapter 5. Sin entered the world through one man. By one man's trespass, the many died. From one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation. By the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And finally, through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. But, again... God be praised. This very same device, this very same arrangement that would constrain God to pass the sentence of death over all, it could also be used to extend blessing. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 11 to 13 say, For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. And this is a doctrine that isn't as much discussed as it should be called the union with Christ. And it is the reciprocal to our state of being in Adam. It is the answer to our plight. And it's the solution to God's dilemma. It's the key to all the benefits that we receive in Jesus the man. You see, we began being in union with Adam. He represented us covenantally. And there was also a, a natural connection because our life derives from his. And so by these ties, the blessings, or in his case, the curses of the covenant pass to us. But Christ was also, he also has that kind of a relationship with us. Another theologian, Louis Burkhoff, he explained it this way. He said, Christ, like the first Adam, did not represent a, a conglomeration of disjointed individuals, but he represented a body of men and women who were to derive their life from him. 
to be united by spiritual ties. They were conceived of as a glorious body, a new humanity, sharing the life of Jesus Christ. And it was in virtue of that union that Christ could say, Behold, I and the children whom God hath given me. And so it goes on in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, and says, Since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. And that thus the dilemma was solved. Thus the knot was untied. This verse mentions Christ as a priest. And the book of Hebrews is actually, it's unique in the New Testament in how it focuses on the priesthood of Christ. It is discussed in the greatest detail here. A priest is someone who is taken from among the people who need to be represented. He is chosen and appointed by God. And he is holy so that he can approach God on other people's behalf. We had been undone by our first forerunner. God provided a new forerunner to cut a path back to our purpose. That's one of the gifts that we've received in Jesus the man. We were rendered unfit for the presence and the service of God. So Jesus suffered and died and then rose again so that he could draw near to God in our behalf and we might be accepted in him. That is another gift that we have in Jesus the man. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children and we are. That's from 1 John chapter 3. And that is what it means for us that Jesus is the God-man. I was, I was struck with some wonderment at God's providence as I stood in the back getting ready to, to come up at the number of different ways that this message is being preached to us this morning. We sang about this very message Merit not my own. We recited a creed about this same message. We're coming up on Christmas, which, true, it's not prescribed in Scripture as a celebration, but still, we celebrate annually the incarnation of Christ. Same message. We're going to be taking communion shortly. Same message. We witnessed a baptism. Same message. The gentleman who was baptized was wearing a shirt that said what? Jesus in my place. Same message. Six or seven different ways, including me standing here before you today, that God is speaking this message to you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is how God shouts. 
Because if he, if he did it like he did for the Israelites at Sinai, uh, we, we would all be dead or at least driven insane with fear. <laughs> and again, the point that the author of Hebrews was making in this text is, this is why we should be paying attention. The temptation that these Jewish Christians were facing was to give Christ lesser attention. It was, it was pressure to, to prefer the law of Moses and just kind of not really care too much about this Jesus and his gospel. But the argument he's been making is that, no, Jesus is so much higher authority than the angels, so his message is that much more important. It is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was. The Old Testament is the rose in the bud. The New Testament is the rose in full bloom. The Old Testament is the message in, in language that is obscure and veiled. But the New Testament is the same message unveiled and clear. And so as you go away from this place, the way that I, I want you to be thinking about these things is what are the things that are, that are trying to convince you to stop paying attention to Christ? What are the things that are competing really for your worship? That's what this is. It's a worship issue. What are you afraid of? What are the things that loom largest? What consumes your thoughts? What's the main threat that you're trying to deal with? Are they political? Is it monetary? Maybe it's your love life. It could even be ministry. What are the lesser forms of salvation that the world is trying to present you with? What are the promises that it is making? If you just concern yourself with this thing and focus here, then you will have peace. Then you will have your prosperity. You will have deliverance from all of the things that you're afraid of. But these are all lesser realities that are clamoring for a preeminence that belongs to Christ alone. What are the things that are seeking to restrict the scope of your vision? So part of the problem that these Jewish Christians had was that they, their vision was being restricted and they, they, weren't really, they weren't really looking all the way to the end in their outlook. That's why the, the author of Hebrews started talking about the world to come because it's true. I mean, if you, if you think about all of these different things that can, that can push in and, and press in on us with their demands and their threats and their promises, if we limit ourselves to a short-term outlook, well, then, yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer. We really need to pay attention to the, those things. But if we extend our outlook out to the eschaton, the end of all things, the end of the story, as it's recorded in Scripture. Well, that way, it's a, it's a no-brainer too, but just in the opposite direction. 
And I'm not saying that these things like the political realities or how you manage your money or romance or even your ministry, I'm not saying any of those things are just unimportant completely. But they need to be kept in context and they need to be kept in their proper priority. And Christ is meant to be all in all. Everything is to be summed up in him. And everything finds its proper place as we listen to him and to his message. As we seek to be dealing with these other areas, these other threats or these other promises, the way that we deal with them properly is to to think of it in terms of our faithfulness to Christ. We listen to Christ, we listen to his message, and we respond in faithfulness to him. Now, what does that look like in how we handle politics? What does that look like in how we handle our money? What does that look like in how we love our wives and love our husbands? What does that look like in how we do our ministry? I'm going to end with a word of prayer and then we'll get ready to take communion. Everyone who has set their faith and their hope in Christ alone for salvation and for inheriting the world to come is invited to partake of communion with us. If you have not, you are invited to find one of the elders who will be happy to pray for you should you desire. But without further ado, I'm going to close us in a word of prayer. And then we can collect elements for the communion. Lord Jesus, the message of hope that you brought, the message of hope that you embodied is so very much greater than anyone here can communicate. And I pray that you will bless my efforts today that they may have impact and effect upon the minds and the hearts in this room. We give you praise and we give you thanks because of the way that you submitted yourself to your Father's will, the way that you submitted yourself to suffer and to die on our behalf, in our place, so that we could be freed from slavery, so that we could be freed from the fear of death. Death can no longer condemn us. The law can no longer condemn us. Because you took all of that on yourself. All the wrath of God against our sin was spent on you. And then you emerged just as clean, just as holy, just as radiant as ever you were. We thank you for uniting us to yourself. Help us to live as people united to Christ, really and truly united. Help us to live 
Lord, as people who are cognizant of Christ in us, not just with us, the hope of glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We hope God meets you where you are and doesn't leave you, but changes you through the work of His Son. For additional information, please visit citychurchpa.org.